Brands looking to embed financial services in their products want to get to market quickly, and they don't want the heavy lift of building finance workflows and managing regulation. 11FS Foundry is the answer. It's our financial services operating system that lets you embed finance in weeks, not years. And it gives you the pre-built workflows and smart features to win customers for your platform. To find out more and get a demo, head to 11FS.com forward slash Foundry today. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer, and today I am joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Jason Bates. How's it going, Jason? It's good. How are you doing? I mean, I've been off work sick for a week, so this is like my first thing back. So my voice has been doing all sorts of, like, I've gone full sort of teenager, you know, voice-breaking vibe today. So let's uh, let's see how this hour of conversation goes. But uh, other than that, pretty good going. How about yourself? Was the, you had a week off, didn't you? Is that right? I did. So yeah, my uh, my week away was better than your week away. I'm hoping you're getting the the burst of energy that comes after, you know, after illness where you realize that feeling normal is actually great. <laughs> the euphoria will be kicking in, won't it, anyway? Uh, and I think a lot of that is going to be about what we're going to be talking about today. So in today's episode, what we want to be talking about is non-financial services providers and how they're getting more and more into financial services, why they want to offer FS products, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, and what do they really need to take into account in order to create these offerings as well? So essentially, the most important question as far as really they're concerned uh, that we really want to delve into is how do you get to market quickly? And how does some of that sweet, sweet FS opportunities that uh, is being sort of uh, played out there, how do they really get towards that opportunity and that revenue quickly? To delve a little bit deeper into this, joining myself and Jason, we have a fantastic group of guests. First up, we've got Ray Brash, who is the CEO over at PPS. Welcome to the show, Ray. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm super, Dave, and I uh, hope you're feeling better. That sounds like you've had a tough time. <laughs> yeah, I had all of the COVID signs with none of the certificates, you know what I mean? So, uh, but anyway, I'm feeling much better now, which is good. For anybody who doesn't know, do you want to tell us a little bit about PPS? Yeah, so we've kind of been a payment service provider since 2010, I guess. And non-financial service customers has been our thing. I mean, I don't know if it's a badge of honor. We never worked with a bank till about three years ago because we felt that to do something different, you just had to come at it from a different aspect. So we've always worked with retailers. We work with e-com guys. And we try and enable those guys to get to market. So we do all the tough stuff around payments and allow for those guys to really bring distribution and their customer expertise. Yeah, that's what we do. Very good. Next up, we have Tui Allen, who is a senior product leader at Shopify. No stranger to uh, moving into financial services there. Welcome to Fintech Insider. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. So uh, really looking forward to the conversation. And actually, I myself was also off last week, too. So but similar, maybe more to Jason um, off because it's in the United States. It was uh, spring break here. So um, took some time off with my kids and family. So, but really, this is a great way to start the week. Indeed, indeed. Um, for anybody who's been sort of living under a rock for the last couple of years, do you want to give us a bit of a background on Shopify? Yeah, absolutely. So at Shopify, we like to think of ourselves as democratizing entrepreneurship and helping more people start thriving, scalable businesses. Our mission is to make commerce better for everyone. Very good. That's a pretty pretty big objective right there, I have to say. But you're you're making a decent dent in that, which is which is good. Last but uh, by no means least, we've got Adele Pirley, who is director of product management over at Delivery Hero. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. How are you? 
Feeling better after your... Uh, I mean, a lot better this week than last week. But uh, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, do you want to just give us a quick background on Delivery Hero? Yeah, sure. So Delivery Hero is a global food delivery marketplace. So it's everything from food takeaway to groceries, pharmaceuticals, flowers, anything that you can get delivered, we basically do. We're processing millions of transactions everywhere from kind of Asia all the way across to Latin America. So that's Delivery Hero in a nutshell. Very good. All right. Well, we've got one person who's helping people do it and two people who have very much done it, which is great. So uh, we better add some value here, Jason, else we're probably out of our depth. So uh, let's see see where we go. Uh, I mean, Jason, on that note, I'm going to throw to you pretty much from the from the get-go on this one. So surprise. Well, throw me into the bus. I know, exactly. Somebody's got to take the first hit, right? So look, we've been talking about the banking battlefield shaping up for the last sort of four or five years, right? The changes in regulation, the changes in technology, and new players kind of come coming into that banking battlefield to disrupt it. But do you want to give a bit of a quick overview of that? And also, I mean, how do you see the non-bank players really shaking that up? So I think, I mean, look, we've worked around challenger banking, around fintech space for a long time. What, five years last week since 11FS started? Starling, Monzo, a variety of other things I was involved with. And I think through all of that, the, the change that we've seen is that there's this move from commodity products with a distribution channel to intelligent services to actually bridging the gap where you're delivering something for customers that uses intelligence, that uses algorithms, that uses data to do a job for customers rather than just giving them naked access to a list of transactions, an account history and a way of transacting. And so we're seeing that, that buildup of that stack from the, the rails that money moves with the financial products, whether they're loans or deposit products above them, to these services layers, which actually help small businesses with their cash flow, individuals with their personal financial management. And indeed, now in the US, we're seeing players arrive that are focusing on services for even smaller niches. So I think with that buildup from products to services and then to embedded journeys where actually we're looking at the, the point of need and where financial products actually intersect with those things. So suddenly we've got escrow and payments and lending and insurance all belonging at the point you would use them rather than going to my online you know, retailer, then heading off to my bank to work out if I can borrow the money before coming back. Those things are being collapsed into these seamless end-to-end journeys. So for me, that's the, you know, the, the path that we've seen telcos take, where suddenly we went from you know, a Nokia feature phone to a, an iPhone with a, a calculator and a camera to something that was an app store that people built things on. Financial products and financial services, I think, are, uh, are starting to build on top of each other to make ever more sophisticated services and journeys. And that's where it moves away from the bank into, well, wherever else we spend our money, whoever that retailer or merchant or service provider is. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Tui, maybe coming to you, but why are you guys kind of moving in this direction? What's the draw? Because financial services is, you know, it's a pretty slow moving, you know, gigantic industry with lots of sort of regulatory burden. I'm not selling it very much, am I here? But, uh, but what's the draw for you guys to sort of get into this space? Yeah, so we see that many sort of non-financial service providers are looking to move into the space because they're seeing a gap, right? They're seeing a gap in providing the tools and the services that their users need to take control of their finances. 
And so at Shopify, we feel that today's banking products are built from more of the traditional bank's point of view, and they aren't designed for the needs of an independent business. And our approach to embedded finances is launching financial solutions that are exactly at that right point in context with where the merchant need is to remove the barriers, remove those gaps, remove that friction so that we can actually help our merchants focus on what they do best. And that's, you know, being entrepreneurs, creating, building products and selling products. And so that's really what our focus is and why we've moved into the space. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? You've got a great brands that your customers trust you with with the things that you've done and the you know the experiences you built for them and it's so often when we have conversations with non-financial players that are moving into this space it's like we're just trying to solve a customer's problem like we i don't i'm putting sort of words in your mouth here but you're not going out there to be like i want to be a bank it's like no we just we're just trying to solve customers problems right yeah exactly and you know if you think about it shopify actually um started that journey with payments. And so we recognized a challenge of, you know, being able to process payments online. And so seamless payment processing was sort of the first entry into fintech. But then as merchants grew on our platform, we recognized the need that they had to be able to actually access funding and that there was a gap there and a barrier there. And so we launched Shopify Capital. And last year we announced Shopify Balance, which is our entry into more of the sort of vast world and the money management tools that merchants need to help kind of really manage the full suite of their their financial operations. But yeah, it is exactly that. It's a pain point. There's gaps. And so we saw that and we wanted to remove that for our merchants so that they could focus on doing what they do best. And that's what brought us to this space. Very good. Uh, we'll come back to that much more as, uh, as we go on. But Adil, from, from your perspective as, as well, I mean, what's really sort of made the push from yours and Delivery Hero's perspective to, to think about this? And knowing a little bit about your history, you've got a history in financial services, haven't you? Yes. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a curse or a, or a good thing. But yeah, I've been having to deal with uh, financial services for a good few years now in London originally, but uh, now with Delivery Hero. I think it's kind of another sort of angle to, to what Tui was mentioning there. For, for us, it was it was something that was born out of necessity, right? So we, we ourselves are dealing with our brands, like I said before, global brands, right? So the payments landscape is extremely fragmented. So with that comes huge amounts of kind of inefficiency in how you reconcile payments, how you manage your payments that need to go to your vendors and so on and so forth. And, it, and it's extremely costly. So... From there, uh, you know, the step to take really the, the the kind of natural step was to go right. Well, how do we how do we standardize all these things, and how do we make you know our payments a lot less costly? And, and that was really kind of the, I guess, this, the first step, the first foray into into financial services. And since then, you know, we we have three domains in our fintech division within Delivery Hero. One one is payments, which I look after, and as you can imagine, that's quite a we're processing nearly five million orders a day. So so it takes a lot of kind of you know management. But we also have a wallet domain and we have a risk domain because we've seen since we've started this journey that there's a lot of opportunity in in those areas as well. So yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And uh, how much do you think the experience that you've had within financial services is, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer, but has that set your expectations in a bad way? Or is it sort of 
let you know what you're in for to a certain degree. Atiri, I don't know if you've got a what your background was before this as well, but because FS sort of works in a weird and wonderful way, acquired taste, I think, is probably a best way of uh, describing it. But uh, Adil, is it is it sort of helped you to sort of level set your expectations, or is it almost sort of let you know exactly where the problems are to to be able to address? I think it's the the latter, right? So coming into Delivery Hero, I think it was fairly clear that it was quite chaotic. And I think everyone at Delivery Hero would also admit to that because first and foremost, we were a food delivery, a logistics company going into financial services. So when I came to Delivery Hero, it, you know, there was quite a few kind of glaring sort of gaps where we could definitely bring some value straight away. So it was kind of nice in a way because I knew not exactly, but I, but I had a fairly good idea of where we should be looking at to, to try and make payments for, for Delivery Hero work more efficiently. Mm. How about you, Tiri? Was your background before Shopify FS related? or? Yeah, it was. It was. FinTech, but software and finances combined. I would agree with Adele. I think it's, it's recognizing that once you actually understand the space, and it actually really, a lot of it kind of you think about... Um, at least in North America, um, but I think this is probably a global challenge. Financial acumen, it's, it's on a decline. And the challenges that we have are that financial acumen of the average you know, individual is not where it needs to be because unfortunately the education systems aren't focusing on that. And the world of finances and financial services create this complexity in language and terminology and all the rest of it. But when you really sort of break a lot of that down, you recognize that it's basic flow of management of funds and money management. And we have such an opportunity to help the average user who's sort of living in a chaotic, like as Adele mentioned, a very chaotic world, bring and simplify so much of that so that you can actually identify and pinpoint those gaps and those problem areas that allow our users and our customers to actually focus on what they're good at and remove some of that friction. So I, I agree with Adele. I think a lot of it is just understanding the space and then being able to sort of remove the unfortunate sort of chaos that exists. We like for small businesses that we serve and entrepreneurs at Shopify, we like to talk a lot about, it's all about sort of helping the underserved and the overwhelmed help get a handle on their finances. Mm, I like that, the uh, underserved and overwhelmed. Jason, we often refer to the underserved and overcharged, don't we? But it's an <laughs> interesting sort of build on that, because like say that overwhelming nature, financial services as an industry has been a real bugger for crazy acronyms that mean nothing to anybody unless you've been in banking for the last six years, essentially. And uh, actually talking to humans like humans is a bizarrely big gap in the industry in terms of actually being able to sort of get cut through. So, uh, but I, I mean, I wonder if that, I mean, is the benefit of being outside of the industry then greater than being in the industry? I mean, Jason, the we often sort of talk to a lot of banks on the side of, you know, well, actually the thing that you're trying to get them to understand is like what agile means and, you know, what good technology looks like in these situations. But actually when you're working with organizations who really get that stuff, then actually the bit, the gap in the their knowledge or the gap in the market is sort of something different at that stage, isn't it? 
Yeah. I wonder if the flip of what is the advantage, what is the disadvantage of different players on that banking battlefield changes quite dramatically with non-bank players coming in. Because, you know, arguably the experience that, you know, Shopify is delivering for their customers on all of those experiences is actually setting a much higher bar of expectation with your customers to e for for what their expectations are is for FS. So a traditional financial services product just sort of shoved into a, a really great, well-rounded experience just won't cut it. Well, well, let's put it this way. I think when people talk about non-financial services companies coming into financial services, then I think the bankers think they're going to create a bank and actually compete with me directly on the things that I compete with. And actually, I'm really good at that. I've got brand and branches and everything else, so that'll struggle. But I think what they probably, or what a uh, the old guard don't get, is that that's not the way that they're competing. In the same way that the App Store doesn't compete with Vodafone, they're, we're talking about different levels. And we're seeing in the US with Google making some relationships with like six banks or with Chime building on top of Bank Corp. It actually lends to this, this layering where we're seeing financial services providers then actually be the service providers to the rest of the industries that then, you know, build their own financial services rather than just a different way of getting to a financial product. Mm, it's interesting. Tiri, you got any thoughts on that? I completely agree. Um, and I think that that's both the point you brought up, David and Jason, is spot on in terms of the shift in that paradigm where it's not so much focusing on traditional banking or traditional financial services it's more of a verticalized or niched in context opportunity to offer those capabilities in context of the action the user or the customer is taking. And it is a shift, but an important shift that will be required, I think, to really be able to grow and succeed in the next generation of financial services. Mm. Maybe looking at this from the other angle as well then, Ray, because obviously, I mean, that expectations from a customer's perspective is being set. But actually, when you're dealing with, you know, very fast moving, high expectations organizations, then actually the expectations onto partners kind of further down the funnel is is really, really important as well. And, and as you were sort of touching on, Ray, you've worked with big banks, but also the upstream partners there in terms of the non-banks then. I mean, how have you found that? Has the, the dynamic been different for those different types of players? You know, you're not, uh, like, like I was saying a second ago, you're not explaining how uh, microservices and agile works. You're sort of fitting into a process that knows how those things function. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's incredible how the basic question I ask some of my partners in, in, is never answered. So. If I go back eight years, I suppose, we worked with EE, so Orange and EE, who were very keen to get into financial services. And we launched the first mobile payment uh, service with EE, Cash on Tap. And I kept asking them, why do you want to do this? And the answer was, well, we want to make money from financial services. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, okay, you're in a business mobile where you're making 97% margin on airtime. And you want to go into a business where you might make 20 basis points. And therefore, it's why do you want to get into this space? Financial services essentially is about making money from moving money, whether it's lending, whether it's investing, whether it's insurance. So what we see, and the question I always ask my non-financial partners is, why do you want to do this stuff? And generally, 
it's not because they want to become a bank or they want to do insurance or they want to lend better. It's they are feeling frustrated with the traditional financial service industry and the services they're getting. So PPS, what we try and do is we try and break through the traditional barriers for non-financial partners, you know, like Shopify or Delivery Hero, who need to have some aspect of being able to move money because it's important for their business, but they're not trying to necessarily make money from that. It just enables them to have a much better customer experience and a much better offer. So that's really the difference. But it's so important when you speak to a non-financial about why do you want to do this stuff? Because if you want to get into it, it comes with a hell of a lot of hassle and a lot of cost. You know, and, and a lot of non-financial partners are not interested in that, they don't understand it. But just asking these very simple questions at the outset, it's amazing how many times you get like crazy answers. <laughs> well, and at that point as well, it's sort of setting a different agenda, isn't it? You know, asking why in terms of the process and why do you want to serve those customers in that way? I mean, embedded finance, I guess, as a narrative or a plan of direction more broadly. I mean, it feels like, uh, Jason, you sort of touched on this earlier on, but solving the problems where the problems are rather than expecting the customer to sort of piece together this tapestry of your everyday life is just not really practical, is it? So it feels like the, the industry's moving that way. It feels like the, you know, the best solution is always the closest to the problem, right? What we're seeing is not only embedded finance, it's you know, embedded business. Businesses are embedding themselves in other businesses to create these end-to-end journeys. So, you know, Uber is a great example of an API-based business that effectively creates that private chauffeur experience using APIs from Google on the maps, TomTom on the directions, you know, uh, internal APIs for GPS with the phone. It's basically an API business created by other APIs with a driver network, you know, attached to it. So the fact that finance is embedded in that, well, that's true, but so is mapping and so is, you know, logistics and so is a variety of things. So ultimately, we're getting to a point where digital and technology is driving the integration of varieties of business into journeys that matter for customers, whether that's getting a meal to my door, whether that's taking me across town, or whether it's helping with cash flow management or finding and buying a house. I mean, I know you're going through that, David, but the day when, you know, the surveyors, the lawyers, the mortgage brokers, the providers, the moving companies get together and create some kind of platform, everyone will be a lot happier. So I think it's not only about finance embedding, it's just about embedding and that actually finance is a big part of so many different transactions that there's this whole class of products that you used to have to go to another party and then come back with that will will be where they're needed. Although, of course, there will be still products and services, just as Tui was talking, you know, you could see that on one hand, you've got the things that actually make these end-to-end journeys happen. On the other hand, there's cash flow management and capital for businesses. So, you know, there are almost two classes of services versus journeys there, I think. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, that sort of constellation of those services being brought together is really what the, you know, what we're talking about here is the value of to customers of time, right? Actually, you could do all those things, but actually if somebody offers a service in the market that means you don't have to, then you will, right? It's, it's why Klarna's done so well. It's why PayPal did so well back in the day. You know, actually, you know, 
not having to find your wallet or just pressing the button, pressing the button wins, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and just to kind of add to that, I mean, in the world of, you know, small business and entrepreneurs, it can actually mean their survival, life or death in terms of their ability to manage cash flow effectively, their ability to access funding when needed. Those are things that the average small business or entrepreneur really struggles with. And so if we can remove some of that pain and some of those friction points, that can actually change their entire trajectory and actually get them on this journey to growth and independence and financial freedom, which is what we're really focused on. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the progression that we've seen, like I say, the regulatory thing is part of it, definitely. But the progression that we've seen from a technological perspective means, you know, both of your ability to do what you're doing is like never really before in financial services. Because we've seen big brands try to get into bank. I mean, Jason, you know, somebody like Tesco Bank tried to, you know, Tesco, gigantic retailer, phenomenal at managing data to the point where they spun out Dumb Humvee as a, an entity to do that and do it amazingly well. But then when they decided to build a bank, they built a bank like a bank builds a bank. You know, it was using old fashioned technology, like old fashioned processes, thinking it's so actually, you know, the, the place that we're at right now, you know, just sort of mimicking big banks doesn't feel like it really solves the problem. So, I mean, you guys must have looked at various different opportunities to sort of get into it. But Adia, I mean, white labeling probably wasn't the solution. Buying a bank sounds quite expensive, so probably wasn't their route to sort of go on this one. Regulatory approval and licensing, like I'm not sure you fancy going down that direction. Well, funny you should mention that, actually. Because of the different countries that we deal in and operate out of, the regulatory sort of landscape, it varies quite, quite wildly. For example, in Turkey, we our brand in Turkey is has to have an e-money license in order to process the volume of transactions that it's currently processing. So it's almost like a PCI DSS sort of style of approach in certain countries where if you are processing such and such payment amounts, then you need to have that regulatory framework around it. We're seeing the same things happening in, in Singapore, in Pakistan. So Actually, even though we don't want, we we definitely do not want to go down that route. We're sometimes forced to just because of the nature of the countries that you're operating out of. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? But at that point where you've scaled, and that's amazing, isn't it? Because if you can use the process to get to where you need to get to, and almost like nobody uh, nobody minds doing that once you've been really successful doing it right but actually if you have to put all of that effort in at the beginning because we've seen a lot of challenger banks go through all of the the pain in the process of all of the regulatory approval to not really achieve the outcomes that they want to but ray what do you think well i think the philosophy we always look at it is customers come to us with either they want something and it's either core to what they want to do or it's peripheral to what they want to do and i think it's a really good framework when you're looking at working in this industry. So, you know, a core customer for us would be someone like Tide. So Tide, the essence of what they're doing is banking, providing banking services, payment services, and we support them with that. A peripheral customer might be someone like Pension B, who we work with, or Yolt, or someone like that, whereby the payment is kind of, it's an add-on and it brings a little bit more traction. It's not really super core. So for Pension B, you know, they have a clear interest in managing pensions, but they feel, could they offer a transactional account as an add-on to it? And so we try and organize ourselves so that 
we can work with the customers who want to do core. And those are the customers who they're investing a lot in the the really heavy kind of banking space and 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 that's that's their mission they'll put a lot of investment in that but other customers say well actually i'd like to offer a transactional account klarna we started working with klarna six seven years ago just because they wanted to have a way of paying merchants outside of their core system and using a virtual mastercard was a good way of doing that so when you're dealing with non-financial industry most of them do start in that kind of peripheral market we just launched with a a company called Talonom last week, the Scandinavia's largest professional services company. So they're providing accounting services, tax services, advisory services for thousands of businesses in Scandinavia. And they kind of figured, well, maybe we could offer them a bank account as well, you know, on the side. So that's kind of like a peripheral piece. And that'll be how we work with them for a couple of years. Now, one day, maybe that becomes their core offering. But, you know, for non-financial services, you want to be able to offer that range of services. One day it might become important. Yeah. I think there's something really interesting you said there, Ray, about banking. Because I think part of the problem is it's really two things now where it's always been one thing. It's been a business model and a service. And actually, the business model has always been attached to the service. So it's simple to just kind of see them as one. So a banking business model is you take deposits, you lend them out to someone else, you make net interest margin, you have to have a banking license, and that's how you make money. Basically, it's it's savings and loans, the traditional route. But where do you get those deposits from? Well, you have to offer accounts to people, you know, savings accounts or payment accounts or whatever. So you end up doing the service bit because that gives you the money in order to do the, the business model. And I think what's interesting is those things don't have to be welded. In fact, are being actively drawn apart, which is why, you know, PPS can can be in there providing the regulatory account to deliver that service. But actually, you can make money on that service in a variety of different ways. You don't have to do net interest margin. It can be ad supported or affiliate fees or another part of your business does a lot better because you offer a payment account. And I think that, that I think that separation between actually the business model and the thing that we know as the current account, the credit card, has always been so intermingled. Mm, exactly. That's one of the things that banks struggle to think about because they've always seen them as one and they are being drawn out as separate things. Mm, I think that's really interesting and probably a, a good place to, to leave for the first half. Because actually, if you stand back from this and you're, a, let's say you work at a big bank and you're listening to this right now, is like, these organizations, like the non-banks coming into financial services are not doing it to play the same business model that you are. They're doing it because they've got a completely different objective, which is just to solve problems that their customers have got. And therefore, the business model around doing this is fundamentally different to what you're looking at as well, which is either really, really exciting or absolutely terrifying, depending <laughs> on which way of that side of that fence you are. But uh, on that point, let's close out part one. We'll be back with you very shortly. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favourite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. Hey, folks. Uh, so in the second part of the show, what we're going to be talking about is how do these systems get put in place? You know, we've talked a little bit about bank as a service. But beyond that, what is this iteration around 
the sort of underlying fabric of financial services? What's the pieces that sit underneath this that are actually really facilitating this happening in the first place? So maybe if we sort of start a little bit with BAS, like I, I think two of you mentioned a little bit earlier on around, you know, banking products made by banks for banks. BAS feels to me sometimes a little bit like a technology solution made for banks rather than really thinking about the products that organizations are really needing. Because, you know, again, we sort of come back to the point earlier on, I I don't think Shopify's going like, well, we want to be a bank and we're going to go out there and build a bank and be like the banks. It's like, no, you're solving problems. So, you know, BAS solutions, the technologies that you put in place to make this happen, probably have to work in a slightly different way, right? Yeah, very much so. We look at sort of the BAS foundation as helping us with the infrastructure, the regulatory infrastructure, and and really being kind of that launch pad for offering additional financial services that are catered to some of the gaps and the problems that, you know, our merchants and customers face. For at least us at Shopify, it's not enough standalone. It doesn't provide enough value um, to just offer an account. It has to be connected to the context of what the business function and the journey that that customer or that merchant is on and the connecting of the dots of those two things together are where really you get to that place of, of offering that additional value that our customers are looking for. And, and I'll maybe also just step back to you a little bit about, because this is a little bit about the how. So at Shopify, as many know, we are a engineering and product-led company headquartered in the internet. And we, you know, really look at solving problems. So it's all about what problem are we going to solve and then engaging actual customers and merchants in that product discovery process and making sure that we're connecting with them to truly understand those problems and then rapidly sort of iterating on building around that. So things like the user experience, things like the actual problem we're solving, are really, really critical. And that fast iteration of of understanding and learning through that process is part of sort of how we look at building our capabilities to service specifically the merchant and the customer needs versus just trying to plug and play a BAS foundation infrastructure and hope it just works the way it works, if that makes sense. No, it does, because it it stops then being a you're looking for people who work in the same way that you work, not just solve the technology problem that you have of getting into the market, right? Mm-hmm. Really interested on the point that you made there around the regulatory side of things, because, you know, actually, I mean, this is this is something that Shopify doesn't have experience in. You know, you guys are not financial services regulatory experts for, you know, the last 30 years or whatever. So actually, the people you bring in to work with on that side of things, I, I guess you're looking for the wrapper around those things as well. Again, not just being technological, but actually, and I don't mean regulatory, just like having a regulatory license, but actually, it's the things that help people keep those licenses as well in terms of the, the governance, the structures, the documentation, etc. right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we at Shopify are big believers in identifying the problem and then potentially working with different partners in the ecosystem who are best suited to help us get to market quickly in solving that problem. And that can include the regulatory infrastructure components, or it could include geographic and regional knowledge, because we all know financial services is very different across region by region, country by country. And so we're very much so in the one of the great things that technology brings us is this ability to sort of partner 
in a smart and broad way to make sure that we're bringing sort of the best experience to the table. So if, if you have experience in a certain industry that is highly regulated, like, you know, a certain market, that we bring those together to kind of bring the best of both and then be able to get to market to service the special things, which is what Shopify does, which is service entrepreneurs and small businesses. Mm, that's that's really, really good point. And the point you made around geography as well, I, I think is a really important point because, I mean, both of your businesses operate multinational, right? You guys are kind of all over the place. So actually how you build technology that works in that way that doesn't you know end up creating single stacks in all of these different geos to do these things repeatedly i mean that must be quite a big challenge to deal with the different geos that you guys are uh, operating in i think pretty much everywhere at this stage you guys are aren't you which uh, which is kind of impressive but how do you manage that then from a financial services side of things because obviously as Tui was saying this is a you know, different regulatory requirements, different operational requirements, you know, how are you managing that effectively through, you know, traditional BAS setup? So actually, to be completely honest, it was a bit of a trial and error, right? So we didn't actually get it right to begin with. We did start building stuff which was not reusable, and we've only just come out of that cycle. And the reason for that is because we're not a financial services company. Delivery Heroes ethos has always been we're kind of a a bunch of mini startups underneath the kind of this big umbrella. So what happened was there was kind of, let's just go and do something, right? That was the attitude. And, and then when you just go and do something, you do end up building stuff which is which is bespoke to one country. We have done it a few times, but I think this kind of touches upon the point you made earlier on in, in, in the discussion. You're talking about whether to bring people in with a kind of that financial services background, right? Once you start to bring people with that experience, then you can start to shape your solutions in a more agnostic way, in a way which serves many different platforms and many different brands. So, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing that we started by building stuff which was completely bespoke because we learned so much from that. Right. And so long, long may it continue that we, we make these types of mistakes where we can learn so much from it. But going forward, the way we really try to approach this is we try to find as an abstracted layer, how do we provide the most amount of value to all of our platforms? And, and sorry, when I say platforms, uh, we call our brands, our different brands around the world platforms. So <laughs> I know that can be quite confusing, in the, especially in this uh, conversation. So. Yeah, we do a lot of kind of, you know, understanding what our customers want, what our brands want. And then we make sure that we build a as much as possible a solution which can be agnostic enough to serve all of those different platforms. And that sounds easy or kind of like, you know, sort of, well, well, duh, that kind of, you know, common sense. But it's quite difficult in practice to, to just miss certain requirements and then go down an alley, which then doesn't help everyone. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you say, I mean, both of your, uh, you know, your remits, your roles, like product, right? This is good product management. You're managing financial services like a service, not like a project that ends at some point that you're sort of done with. So, you know, a deal from testing and learning and, and experimenting and understanding, like that's what you do with products, isn't it? In terms of actually making these things happen rather than going, okay, we're going to put this platform in and it's going to be in for the next 703 years. And like, we're hopefully not going to have to touch it. Like that's just not reality in terms of how you create really compelling services for your end consumers, is it? So, I mean, is this, um, again, I'm, I'm almost trying to get that intersection of like, 
I almost feel like the non, I mean, both of you guys have got FS experience, but but almost bringing that non-FS ethos around the culture of experimentation and product evolution and it not being a project, but a business that you're establishing. Like those things feel like such advantages in this space to to be able to have an environment where you rethink what some of the sort of norms of the industry have been like for you know for for such a long period of time but i mean how has that worked with vendors in that space though because i mean ray i'll, I'll come back to you in a second but put, put your finger in your ears for a second but most vendors in financial services have become they oscillate at the same speed as the banks do because of the way that the banks work. So you'll, we know very well, Jason, like we're, I think we've aged probably 20 years in the last five years with 11FS, but just procurement processes in banks are insane. So, you know, when when you guys are able to move quickly and make things happen, are you able to find the vendors to kind of work in that sort of same sort of dance speed as you guys do too? Yeah, at Shopify, that is a critical part of our valuation process. You know, I'll step back and talk so many know that we've got a tight relationship with Stripe. And if you go back to sort of the early days of Stripe, Stripe was a good indicator of like pushing the envelope, trying to reinvent the payments world through APIs and really looking to innovate right on the um, fintech and financial services space. And so we and they together continue to push that. And so when we look at any partners in the space, their ability and any vendors that we're looking to partner with, their ability to iterate, to ship quickly, to innovate. Obviously, there's there's regulation and constraints, but to still really push to innovate is a critical part of our decision-making process. Mm. Well, I mean, we've had Patrick Collinson on the podcast before, and he, he said previously, he's like, they don't really see themselves as a financial services player. Like, they're just, there's some tech people who do payment stuff, you know, and actually they see it much more as a technology play than they do a financial services play. I mean, Ray, I know when we've had conversations in the past, you guys think very similar about what you're doing at, at PPS. It's not really about the financial services side of things. It's facilitating financial services, but it's it's more about the technology that you're putting in place for people, isn't it? Well, it's facilitating the movement of something from A to B, and that might be money, or it might be points, or it might be something else, you know, and that's the value you create. But when you were talking there, it just reminded me about how did we get to where we kind of got to. And I remember in the early days, so we were prepaid card processing business and prepaid cards in the day, you know, 10 years ago would be used like 200 pound transactions, that sort of thing. And then this guy called George Beavis turned up, who was introduced to me. He said, well, I want to do a bank account. And it was George and his Brompton. I always remember it was just him and his bike. And he'd come to our offices in Paddington and he'd put the bike in the corner and have these crazy ideas. I want to do this thing banking and it's going to have all the best things about like the technology you guys do which is open APIs, real-time transactions, the ability to have fees on the spin, create lots of different accounts, but it's going to kind of look like a bank account. And we said, oh, great. And then he said, and I want the accounts to have a balance of a million pounds. I said, you're nuts. You know, like our accounts, it's like, we don't do that. No, no, this has to have, we have to offer a product that has a balance of a million pounds because it's what we go after. So for us, it was just like, wow. Anyway. Six, seven years later, obviously, kind of, we could say it's history, but it was a learning about bringing that technology piece. And George, who was obviously the founder of Tide, 
who was bringing some of his banking staff, but actually realizing that the incumbents weren't working. So you do have to push the envelope every time. And we've worked with guys, well, I was all going to name drop, we worked with Nikolai Revolut about what he was trying to do. And he's pushing the envelope. And it's good. You need to push the envelope. But you've got to also remember, or certainly some of the non-financial institutions have to remember, that you're talking about the product that you're getting involved in. It's not airtime. You know, it's not, you know, a nice baguette or, you know, a curry or something being delivered. It's money. And when your product is money, you ratchet up the risk, you ratchet up the regulation, you ratchet up the standards. So just be aware of that. But let's push, 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 because definitely from a regulatory point of view, I think, you know, Jason, you made a great point. The regulators are still 30 years ago, you know, in terms of, well, we're going to regulate this as if this is a whole thing where your life is invested in this thing. Therefore, we're going to regulate you as if it is. But actually, it's not. And if you want to buy a meal or if you want to buy something on Shopify, why should you be regulated as if you're a mortgage provider or something like that? Yeah, I think uh, just touching on that, I think it's a really valid point. Although uh, you'd be surprised how many people get seriously annoyed by their curry not being delivered. <laughs> but can <laughs> but, I tell uh, you just me one question? But I'm going to interject. We process all of the meal vouchers in France. And this is basically 19 euros a day for someone to buy a baguette. And I always say... You do not want to mess with a French guy and his baguette. Because if that goes down, we've got bigger problems. Fair enough. It wouldn't be me being upset. It'd be my kids mainly if, uh, if our food didn't turn up. But uh, yeah, I, I don't want to have to deal with that. So just, just touching on that, I think um, I've noticed certainly in the last few years just how much there's been a change in the vendor sort of field of things. We're currently dealing or speaking to a company called Primer.io, and they're doing amazing stuff on the payments front and, and just bringing some amazing products to the market, which for us helps us to go much, much faster. The time to market decreases, you know, immensely. So, and with that, they come, you know, and I've just named drop one there, but they come with a regulatory framework and they're understanding their, their customers too and they're understanding how they can bring value. So I think there's been a huge jump. I think the first time I was in, uh, I started at WeSop was in 2012. And I think in the years 2012 to 2015, 16, it has just changed immensely. It's just gone very, very fast in the fintech world. So I think everyone's cottoning on is basically what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the, uh, I think there's been so much said for such a long period of time in the B2C fintech landscape, but the B2B landscape is a bigger market than any really, because actually the, really the, the threat to big incumbent organizations is actually not each other. It's people coming into the market who are better at creating products who are, you know, more determined to service their customers than than anybody. But uh, and it's interesting. I mean, we, we touch a little bit there on sort of trust and trust for systems because, you know, trust for systems, trust to customers, you know, trust in financial services. I mean, Jason, you've often sort of said people sort of trust banks to not run away with all their money, but they don't trust them to do the right thing for them. Do you think these sort of non-FS players coming into financial services, I mean, the threat that big banks saw from non-FS players was Google and Apple and Amazon, right? But, but actually, is it more people that have great communities of people 
and really large, you know, multi-geo locations, but are just serving customers in a way that they really trust. Yeah, look, going back to that business model perspective, does any you know large tech company really want to turn into a regulated entity, especially in low interest rate environments, making vanishingly small amounts with the banking business model? They don't. Do they want to partner with banks and with PPS and with a variety of providers? They do, because they're not going to be making money on that lending unless they get to a scale where they go, you know, actually, we'll just hire, you know, 20 of the best bankers in the world and we'll make our own thing. So if that's not the case, then the threat isn't that, you know, Google becomes Barclays. The threat is that Google works with the three or four smallest building societies in the UK, provides an amazing front end, and then someone else is managing the regulatory back end. Now, for the building societies or the smallest banks that they could partner with, that's great. Suddenly they get volume, suddenly they get balance sheet, suddenly they can do stuff. For the big players, well, suddenly they, they're you know stuck without being able to do really what they want to do. And they'll be disintermediated from their customers. And I think that's the ultimate threat, that you don't really see who your customer is because either through open banking or through providers that are working in partnership with, with other banks, that banking becomes that commodity utility. And no bank in the UK and arguably the world is set up with the cost base to fight in that sort of wholesale uh, utility world. That's where Solaris and Clearbank and Goldman Sachs, who are building specific capabilities around being that powerhouse, that capital engine that can handle the regulation, can make money off the back of it, and then let the you know the tech companies do the services and the interface and the integration. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the disruption all the way through that technology stack that you then start to see is not just at the, you know, we're moving from our five different data centers in all these places to the cloud. It's like, actually, we're talking about fundamental different players at each of these levels of this stack, because, you know, traditional core banking doesn't get you to a low cost, you know, super easy product manufacturing. And neither does a, you know, traditional banking architecture get you to a, a fast, you know, speed to market or low cost sort of exercise. So, you know, it really feels like this is leading to, you know, very much we've seen in, in globally, we've seen fintech being a a catalyst for big banks having to kind of, you know, get their shit together when it comes to sort of servicing customers, but their um, unit economics in terms of the product configuration. But actually at the point where this disruption starts coming from, you know, really people who know more and more and more about this process, then that threat becomes really existential, doesn't it, in terms of actually sort of dealing with it. So uh, again, how does all of these different players work out? Because there are so only so many customers, aren't they? But I mean, Tiwi, are, are you, with the customers that you serve at Shopify, are you seeing or you're expecting as you do more and more them to do almost more and more with you at that stage, aren't you? Because people are always going to have financial lives in different problems across, you know, the internet, as you say. But are you expecting or are you looking to solve more and more problems to have more of them sort of contained within the ecosystem of Shopify? So again, for us, it's all about removing those friction points and those gaps that exist out there that to us talking, you know, a bunch of folks who are from financial services or fintech backgrounds seem pretty basic. But for your average person who's not an accountant or a CFO, they become overwhelming. And so our goal is to remove that feeling of being underserved and overwhelmed 
and bring a lot of that into the Shopify platform. So they don't even, our, our customers and our merchants don't really even have to think about that. And, you know, really for us, it's about sort of that narrative transformation from I run my shop on Shopify to I run my entire business on Shopify and the financial components of managing the business as well. So that is definitely the direction that, that we're for sure have been in and are moving even more so into. Because again, it's all about removing that friction and those gaps from the current merchants who feel very overwhelmed and underserved by the existing kind of financial services space. I'm definitely going to be stealing that underserved and overwhelmed thing. But uh, it's interesting, my, Jason and myself built an SME bank out in the UK. And actually that point we made a lot, Jason, which was nobody starts a business to do banking stuff. You know, you start a business because of you've got a you've got a passion about delivering something. It could be accounting or it could be cookies, but actually, you know, you, you don't want to be doing all of the intricacies of the the things that you're doing with the, the business. So the more you can take that away from people too as you're as you're doing, then the more time they're gonna actually spend making that business successful. And that's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, I, I think we're gonna have to wrap it up at this point though, because I think there's so many different threads we can go on this one. We'll have to get you all back to kind of come and talk about this more. But it, it's interesting because it, it feels like we're in a, a space where the the competitive pressures that are coming into financial services is changing pretty much everything. You know, not wanting to sound too dramatic, but actually when it comes to the expectations that customers have, whether it's the incumbent banks changes that they're having to put in place in terms of staying and uh, and competing in this landscape. But equally, the best thing about all of this is that the, the customers are getting such an amazing level of choice in a way that they've really never had before. So yeah, the market is just heating up nicely, I, I have to say. And with all of that competition then leads to much better outcomes in the businesses as well, which is great. So on that note, I'm afraid we are going to have to wrap it up. Jason, where can people learn a little bit more about you? You can find me at 11FS, obviously. Or you can reach me on Twitter at Jason Bates. Very good. Uh, Tui, where can people learn a little bit more about you and Shopify? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Tui Allen at LinkedIn, or you can find me at Twitter, Tui Tweets. And you can also just follow Shopify on either of those platforms. Very good. Ray, where can people learn more about you and PPS? Yeah, so as above, LinkedIn, Twitter, Ray Brash, or pps.edenred.com. Yeah, just search for us on uh, on Google. Very good. Adele, where can people learn more and about Delivery Hero as well? Yeah, sure. So deliveryhero.com, go and have a look. And myself, you can find me on LinkedIn. Very good. This is definitely a subject matter we're going to be covering more and more and more as this uh, changes. We do love to see how the market is evolving, love to see how different players are coming in and disrupting it. But thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you do like what you've heard, then subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review it super duper helps other people find the show as always if you want to join in on the conversation you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage just search for 11fs or fintech insider or if you want to give us any feedback then drop us an email on podcast at 11fs.com thank you very much everybody goodbye